Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for a healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we'll bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. I'm Lisa. And I'm Sabrina. And this week, we have an interview with Dr. Kathy Cortez-Miller, who is here to answer our questions on how to talk to children about death. This is a bit of a different topic for this podcast, but we thought it would be especially relevant given the current COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Kathy Cortez-Miller is an educator, researcher, and author who advocates for improving end-of-life care. She describes herself as an unconventional death educator. She combines her experience as a cancer survivor and palliative care provider to encourage important conversations about life, dying, and death. Her book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You, is a practical and accessible guide to end-of-life conversations that encourages readers to take control over their health decisions and end-of-life planning. So welcome to the podcast, Kathy. We're excited to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. So to get us started, we were wondering what got you interested in this field and what are some of the things that get you to enjoy your work? Hmm. There are lots of things that get me to enjoy my work, but how I got interested in dying and death um, happened when I was a teenager. I was 16 years old, and my very close friend Heather died in 11 days of acute leukemia. And at the time, I was graduating from high school, and I remember watching the chaos. I remember being incredibly surprised and shocked at what was happening. And this was other than some grandparents who, you know, appropriately grieved for and missed greatly at the time. This was kind of the first death that I had encountered that was not in the expected realm, let's put it that way. And I remember watching people and their level of discomfort, and I didn't have this kind of language for it. So let's call it the chaos. I remember the chaos. And I remember at the time thinking, if this is going to happen to all of us, we need to get better at this. And while that was definitely not the start of a career in as a death educator or as a social worker, it was always something that kind of stuck with me. And it was a way of honoring my friend Heather and learning about how can we die better because how we die matters and how we have those conversations with the people that matter the most to us can really influence how we live well until we die. And so I would say that was kind of, if I think way back when, a real catalyst for me thinking about this. And I've gone through many twists and turns over the moons of, of having been alive. But one of the things that I've really recognized, you said, what do I like about the work is that we laugh an awful lot, like a surprising amount of And that was one of the things that really surprised me. I actually got recruited into palliative care. Um, I was interested in in working with uh, adolescents and mental health. And one of my profs during my undergrad said, I've got something else in mind for you. I think you'd be okay at working with people who are dying. And I'm like, am I that dark and twisty? So potentially, but the reality is 
is that when people have the opportunity to live well until they die, it's incredibly meaningful. Um, and again, you know, the quote, the, the very famous John Cleese, life is a terminal illness, which is sexually transmitted. So we need to figure out how to navigate this well. And so it's been a privilege to be able to, to participate in that work, both clinically and as a researcher and educator. Thank you for that. That's that's really interesting how you kind of um, got into this field and, and what you enjoy about the work. Uh, talking about death is definitely difficult, though. Why do you think it's important? What's important about this conversation that can happen between family members and friends? Yeah, so I, I think part of the reason it's difficult, if I can comment on that first, is that we don't do it enough, that we're not practiced at it. Um, we don't have death education as part of our um, our elementary school education. You know, we're figuring out math literacy and literacy literacy and sexuality and all those kind of conversations, but for some reason we have left death out of that. And yet unless you're Elvis Presley or Shirley MacLaine, it's all gonna happen to all of us, right? So we should be taking it out of the closet, so to speak, and having those conversations. So why do I think it's important? Well, other than the fact that it's gonna happen to all of us, but because when we don't have conversations about things that will happen to us, we tend to distance ourselves from them. We don't have the language around that, we don't have the experience, and we make it sound like it's something that is scary and horrible. And yes, death is sad, it is incredible, incredibly hard to say goodbye to somebody that you love um, when you won't have their physical presence with you at all times. I think that is an important acknowledgement to have. I'm not saying that it is something um, that is easy to do, but if we're not engaged, that we're not thinking about how do we have those conversations, people are not having the kind of deaths that they would like to have. Um, and they're not having the opportunity to say the things that they need or want to say to those closest to them. That's so interesting. I was kind of taken just to go back to one thing that you said. Um, I never thought about it before about the curriculum in school. I actually ne I, I've never thought about it, but you're right. I'm thinking to my children's curriculum um, and they're kind of in the middle, like grade four, um, one of my kids and, and they are doing a lot and I have read ahead in the curriculum and they, they do do a lot of sexual health and where do we come from and and kind of some of the different life stages. But I don't remember seeing anything about end stage of life. Yeah, for some reason, we avoid that. It's it becomes this taboo topic. And then we don't have the capacity to be able to engage with that emotionally, um, to engage with it socially. Um, and I would also say to engage with it intellectually. And so it's not just in the elementary schools that we're missing out on that. We tend to miss it all the way through our education, including of our future healthcare providers of tomorrow. Um, and so it's something that we're not building capacity in. And as a result, people are not having the opportunity to die that the way that they would. And if I can share a quick story, my children are now teenagers, but when they were in elementary school, you know, you're always trying to figure out what to give your teacher as a gift at Christmas or at the end of the school year. And 
So in addition to an LCBO card, I would work on their death library. And my poor kids would like roll their eyes, but I would, depending what grade they would be, I would give them a book, the teachers a book um, about dying and death so that they had this. And it was fascinating because the teachers would hunt me down uh, later and say, I used your book. And, you know, people want to have the opportunity to have these tools so that they can help educate, support and care for the people um, because we're all going to die. Yeah, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Um, and do you have a sense if maybe the uh, pandemic and other current events have maybe prompted more in-depth conversations about death, maybe not in the classroom, but at the household level? I, I really hope so. Um, I, I noticed, so from a more of a macro level, that uh, at the onset of the pandemic in March and, and April is actually um, National Advanced Care Planning Day. And so um, there was a public health push around getting people to have conversations about what was going to matter to them at the end of their lives, including specifically around the pandemic in terms of, um, you know, if you're hospitalized, you won't have access to your family members or the people um, that you love they won't be allowed in that institution and making decisions around ventilators and and so I think people were uh, paying a little bit more attention at that time I know palliative care folks such as myself uh, that we got interviews from different people like a rock a radio station here in town um, was interested in having those conversations so I think it was at a different level I'm quite hopeful um, that those conversations were happening um, maybe at the kitchen table but hopefully also via zoom as we all recognize that with the different um, rules and lockdown guidelines and all that kind of stuff that we weren't as connected uh, would probably hope to be to be able to have those conversations and knowing what is important to the people that we care for is such a gift to receive um, because when it comes to having to make some of those decisions if we don't know we're literally flying by the seat of our pants um, but if we can know in our heart of hearts that what is important to our loved ones is something that we can act upon um, that can be really beneficial to both the person who is dying and those who love them. Thank you Kathy and now thinking about we're talking about conversations. So thinking about those conversations, I remember, so um, last year, March 11 of last year, my, our, our dog passed away. And, uh, and I was, I was a tough conversation to have with my kids. So they were, I want to say eight, six and four at the time. Mm. And uh, we, she lived a long life, 21 years. She was a great little Shih Tzu. Uh, but it was a very hard, I, my, it was hard to kind of, um, think about what was important to kind of what were the important things to kind of say to the kids at those at that kind of age and, and really any kids of, of the, that kind of age group and they kind of reacted so it was so, it was interesting because they reacted so differently to it you know my one my middle son tried to fix it like well the, he called he couldn't say veterinarian he said the vegetarian has a doctor's kit why can't the vegetarian just use his doctor's kit you know, my son, when my older son went quiet and Maya didn't understand, she's like, so when is she going to come back? Like, so it's kind of, um, it, it's a, it's a big question to ask you, but really when we're thinking about how to talk to kids about death, be it a pet or maybe a loved one, like a grandpa, grandma, or in the news, what are the key things that you think are important for kids to understand in this, in these kinds of age groups? What should parents keep in mind for the conversation? Yeah, 
Great question. And first off, I want to acknowledge the death of your your furry animal family member. Thank you. Um, yeah, and that can be difficult, and particularly as a parent. And that's the second piece I want to acknowledge is that it sounds like your furry family member had been in your family longer than your children had, right? So you had your own relationship um, with your with your dog, and. So not only are you navigating that as recognizing what are the decisions that you need to make around the death of your pet, also how are you gonna have the conversations with your kid and doesn't it hurt your own heart, right? So it's incredibly challenging for parents to, to think about and to navigate. And so a couple of the things that you highlighted with your, your own children is that desire to fix it, right? And recognizing that, um, Death is something that happens to all of us. It is something that we can't necessarily fix. It sounds like your dog reached the end of her. Is it her or him? It was a her. Yeah, Roxy. Yeah. Her, her. Okay, Roxy. Roxy's natural life. And so we couldn't use our healthcare system to fix that. And I think children need to hear that our healthcare system is really good at fixing the things that are fixable. But at some point, we are all going to die. And that is not something that can be fixed, nor should it be fixed. And there's a difference between being really sick with something that's fixable and for our bodies to no longer be able to function in the way that we need them or want them to be able to do. So in terms of having the conversations with kids, I would be really cl use clear language as much as possible. I think we do young people a big disservice when we use euphemisms uh, such as passed away or in the deep sleep, or there's a bazillion of them, some that are way cruder and some that are more child appropriate, of course, right? So clear language, using the D words, dying, death, and dead are important. There's something about the finality of saying, Roxy has died. Roxy is now dead. And you brought up one of your children not understanding that Roxy wouldn't come back again. And that is normal too. That's part of, of their psychosocial and intellectual development of not understanding the permanence of death. And so where that becomes challenging for a parent is that we often have to say it again and again before it enters the head of the child and into their heart. And so saying, yes, Roxy is dead or grandma or grandpa, are dead and they're not going to come back again. But we can also talk about how they can continue a relationship in their hearts with them through talking about them, through sharing their memories um, and recognizing the things that they enjoyed in life and acknowledging how much we are going to miss them. So clear language, repeating the information is important, and also to be prepared that children are going to have a lot of questions and perhaps at inopportune times. Um, and so it could be uh, in the bathtub, it could be at bedtime, it could be over dinner, it could be in the middle of church if that's where you go. And I think the key piece is to carve out time to answer that question. And so if you're in a situation where it's not ideal, let that child know that you'll come back to that question because it's an important one. And you're just putting a delay on it for the moment, not because you're scared or frightened, but because you need more space and time to be able to address it appropriately. That's really good advice. And don't kids always come up with the most inopportune time to ask you a question or... <laughs> So that's really, that's really helpful. But your tips are really helpful. That's really great advice. Now, I want to go back to using the clear language because finding those right words um, can be difficult, especially with the different the different ages and, and stages of life. Um, but most of the 
the parents that listen to this podcast do have um, children in the elementary school age group. So when thinking about um, using some of that concise language and using um, some appropriate words, what do you have any suggestions? Or uh, you said using the D's, death, dying, and dead. Um, but what what are some other, um, or do you have any other kind of like words that we could use? I strongly advocate for the dying, dead, and death, the three D's to be used. And if I can tell a story to share why I think that that's the case, I, I'd appreciate that. So of course. I used to work clinically at a hospice unit and uh, as a social worker and really enjoyed uh, the work that I did. And I, and I had a chance to work with children. And I used to think that children were way smarter than adults about death and dying. And they seemed to have a different kind of level of understanding and weren't as fearful as, as many of us are as adults. And I remember of a, a young boy who was in kindergarten when his mom was actively dying on our unit. And like many parents, this mom wanted to make her dying as easy as she possibly could uh, for her young son. And so as a family unit, they had decided that they were going to talk about mom's passing. They weren't going to use the D words because they're harsh and difficult words. And they were going to talk about mom's passing. And this is the phrase that they used. And as a team, we supported the family in doing that. And her her dying, her passing, was actually beautiful. Um, a couple of days before she died, he'd had a sleepover with his mom. They'd shared stories. They had done all the things that they possibly could do. A couple of months after she died, and she died in, let's say, February, March-ish kind of thing, I get a phone call from the young boy's dad and he's quite concerned because his son is now acting out he'd actually hit somebody at school who was wetting his bed at night there was a bunch of things that were coming um, up that were not usual behaviors for him and so his dad came in and brought the the young boy and long story short what turned out is that this little boy was moving from kindergarten into grade one. So everybody was talking about passing into grade one. And the only person he knew who had ever passed was his mother. And she wasn't there anymore. And so we had done him a big disservice by trying to make it easier for him in that time by using gentler, more easily digestible words, so to speak. He got confused. He understood his mom wasn't coming back, but she had passed. He didn't understand that we use passing in different ways, but we use dying, dead, and death generally to mean one thing. And that is why the clarity of language, I think, is really important. That's a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. I was going to ask, is there um the best age to have these kind of conversations. But now I'm thinking I know the answer to that question. So I might rephrase and ask, is there a way to um, develop these conversations as children um, are getting older? I, I think so. I think through teachable moments, actually. I think that that's a, a really good way to do that. So, um, you know, when I, I think about my own children growing up, there were always times and opportunities um, to have conversations. It could be, I live in Northwestern Ontario, so we see roadkill fairly frequently, right? Um, or if a bird hits a window, or it's the death of a family pet. So to, to build their capacity to have the conversations by using those teachable moments. Um, dare I say Disney movies? for whatever reason, are always killing off the mom, right? So if, if, you, if you watch those kind of movies with your child, they can be catalysts to have 
discussions around dying, death, loss, and bereavement. Um, newspapers, there'll be conversations. I, I'm hopeful that these conversations are happening fairly frequently um, with COVID uh, being part of it, that kids are asking those questions. And so I wouldn't say that there's a particular age. It's when the child asks or when there's an opportunity to normalize the discussions, to be able to validate some of the emotions and the concerns and the questions that kids have around those. And from a parenting perspective, it's okay to say that you don't know the answer to the questions because again, we're only gonna die once. So we don't know what it is like. We don't know what happens afterwards. We may have some belief systems that guide us. We may have had some life experiences that can help us to share more information, but we need to let our kids know that it's a part of life. It's a normative life event. I really um, thank you for that, Kathy. And I, I really like the idea of it sounds like and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the conversation will develop really as their questions develop because they kind of tend to ask different questions at different life stages. Is that right? I would say so. And take your cue from the children, you know, I, when they're seeing things and they're asking and um and even if they're not initiating the conversation, just to let them know, you know, if you have questions about what you saw in the movie, or, you know, if you were wondering what happened to uh, Frankie's grandmother, I could answer some of those questions, you know, and, and give them permission to um, let them know that they're confused, that maybe they have some fears about that, and that adults are the people that can help them answer those questions to the best of our ability. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that this is a large topic uh, and, and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to think about and, and a lot of different ways that we can be speaking to our children. Um, if we were interested uh, in looking to find more resources and information, uh, do you have any suggestions as to where we can do that? I do. We're lucky that we have access to some great resources. So um, if you're interested in advanced care planning uh, within Ontario, Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, Speaking Up, Speaking Out is a great resource. Um, the Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Association has super resources specifically around talking to children. I would recommend that you check out uh, kidsgrief.ca, which is from Virtual Hospice, uh, which is an online uh, consortium of information pertaining to dying and death. Uh, there's also Dr. J. Children's Grief Center.ca, which has some great resources. And Andrea Warnick is, uh, has a robust website with some great resources there as well. So from sheets on how to have conversations with your kids, good book suggestions, where to go if you want to have some psychosocial support for your child um, if there's been a death, um, any of those kind of things, those are a good place to start. Great. We'll absolutely link all those resources in the show notes for our listeners. And um, thank you, Kathy, for taking the time to do this with us today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's been really, really helpful. And I think you've provided uh, all the listeners some good information and, and some great links to resources. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you.